yes, we roll the pace. 360 degrees, high, high, 360 degrees, high, high, 306, 306, 360 degrees, high, high, All right, good evening and welcome to Full Circle, the cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members of the First Voice Media Apprenticeship Program. It's Black History Month. Time to remember the contributions of African Americans and it's also a time to remember the struggles as well as the successes that shape our lives. Tonight on Full Circle, we will have a potpourri of stories and commentaries from current and graduate apprentices. And you will hear talk about skin color and hair texture. We're going to go back to a more somber time when lynching seemed to be as common as officer-involved shootings. And then we'll visit the Black History Arts and Artifacts exhibit in Antioch. All that and more tonight on Full Circle. Stay with us. All right, this is Joy Moore, and tonight we're going to start the show with a segment from a graduate apprentice, Janine Etter. I really appreciate this piece because I know there's an obsession in this country with how people look, what color they are how deep a tan they have, what color is their hair, what color their eyes. So color is really uh, important, and even shades of color. So in this next piece called A Dark Skin Matter, we learn who cares what shade of skin we are in. One of the sayings I remember hearing when I was growing up was, if you're white, you're all right. If you're yellow, that's mellow. If you're brown, stick around, but if you're black, get back. This is an image that I hold when I think of white supremacy, its acceptance, and its rules. It suggests that anything closest to it is right, and anything farthest from it is somehow wrong or strange or defective. For myself, within the black community, I remember hearing taunts from those lighter than me, male or with straighter hair, Any quality that made them closer to being white and male made them superior to this dark-skinned, curly-headed female. I was last in line, and even people who were only slightly lighter than me deemed it their duty to be my leader. They had a right to tell me what to do regardless of my intellectual capacity, regardless of my ability to lead and understand information, regardless of my character. Skin color, gender, and hair texture were the qualifications for leadership, not intelligence, love, or self-respect. In fact, it was subliminally suggested that the color of your skin, a physical quality, somehow gave you spiritual and intellectual qualities more abundantly. After I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, the ISIS papers, and many, many more books and did much independent study on the purpose of melanin, I began to understand its superiority in being able to relate to the sun and nature, and I understood what it meant to be black, why we were created, and the specialness of darkness. I knew that I was among the first, the original of humankind, and that white people come from black people. Light genes are recessive, while dark genes are naturally dominant. 
Growing up, many people told me how beautiful I was in connection with my skin color, as in, you so black and pretty, and you so pretty and black, and black beauty, and on and on. My skin color became a badge of honor. I was pure, holier, and more close to Africa, where our people come from. Everywhere I turned, people seemed to envy me because of my color. Whites would tell me I didn't have to wear sunblock. Blacks would tell me how smooth and pretty my skin was. Men would try to get with me because I was so ancient, so pure, so dark, so mysterious. Although this was a compliment, I didn't necessarily like being approached simply for my skin color. I wanted people to see that there was much more to me than just my physical being. There was a lot more going on in the beauty and the darkness of my mind. One day, I looked in the mirror and I saw a human being before I saw a color for the first time in my life. I could see past all the definitions that people use to suggest that I'm worthy or not worthy or capable or not capable of achieving or not achieving anything. Skin color has absolutely nothing to do with intelligence or beauty or ability. It is man's attempt to live more comfortably, to make up lies and perpetuate them through violence in order to keep the illusion going. Light comes from dark, we know this. It takes meditation and going into the darkness of your mind to bring beauty into the light. Within the dark, there is love, intelligence, and beauty beyond our wildest dreams. So I invite you to embrace the dark, and therefore, you will embrace the light. For Full Circle, I'm Queen Janine. Wow, Queen. <clears throat> Got me all choked up. Thinking about <clears throat> how important color is and how it shapes our lives. How it affects what people think about us. I really appreciate her sharing that with us. That was called A Dark-Skinned Matter. It was by Janine Etter. She's a graduate apprentice and a producer here at KPFA and programmer. So this is Joy Murray. You're listening to Full Circle on 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley. Janine really did a wonderful job. I can't get over that one. So um, she talked about struggles that she faced because of her skin color and how the words of Malcolm X helped her grow to appreciate and cherish her dark skin beauty we're going to move on up next audio desperado Ephraim Colbert speaks with Sharon Campbell owner of World of Braids in Oakland in California about hair so you've been in business for 21 years but how many years have you been uh, doing hair oh my goodness I've been doing hair all my life when I was a little girl hair always has been my passion I can remember as far as I was like five or six, uh, I have a sister that's right after me and uh, she's in the hair business as well. And I remember my mom would do our hair and then we'll go right behind her back and go mess with it. And then we'll have a braid sticking up in the air and my mom would look at us like, did I do that? And we was like, yeah, because we'll get in trouble if she knew we were messing in our own hair. So I can remember that being like the beginning of my hair-loving career. <laughs> and since you've had a long career within the hair um, world, you've probably seen many different styles come and go. How was that for you to be able to see that? I've seen pretty much every style. The beauty of seeing styles is a lot of the times how we learn about styles. The clients is the ones who let us know what's going on out there. So prior to 
Pinterest and Facebook and Google and all of that. When anything, any new fashion come in style, people, the ones who would call us and ask us, hey, uh, you know about this? Um, can you do this? And that, then we'll research it. And the majority of the time, that's all we find out what was going on, what was trending. So, yeah, the clients is the ones who kind of keep us on the top because they come in here and ask us for what they want. And it is up to us to offer it to them, find the way to learn it, offer it to them. If not, they got to go to the next person who can give them what they want. <laughs> what tend to be the prominent styles now? Uh, well, yeah, we do work with different textures. As we say here, hair is hair. So uh, pretty much, you know, we work with all hair, every texture, every ethnicity, every every kind of hair. Trending styles that we're seeing today, it doesn't vary too much. The most thing that you might see is techniques being rebranded you know somebody do something a little different tweak it a little bit and call it a different name so clients would call us and ask us oh i want so so what i'll do i'll tell them send me a picture and once they send me the picture i'll see that this whole thing that we've been doing forever it's just that um that's what they call it today you know that's that's what that's what i do to pinpoint exactly what they do it so i can tell them yeah sure we do that we offer that come on in so hair is, is a really important part of personality and how a person expresses themselves. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, definitely, for sure, for sure. A lot of cultures believe that um, hair is, is sacred. People also believe that hair has a lot to do with spirituality, and we respect anything people come in here and, and tell us. I mean, there's clients that... You can cut their hair. There are clients that their hair, if you cut it, it can't fall on the floor. There are clients that even if we cut their hair, they will collect it and take it with them because they, they believe that hair has power in it. And, you know, whatever way we dispose of that hair is like disposing of their powers. So, yeah, hair mean different thing to different people. I mean, to a lot of people, hair is just hair, but to a lot of people, hair means a lot, and we treat people accordingly, and um, to respect even the trimming of their hair, to let they know that we that we acknowledge that and we respect that mentality. And hair also holds a pretty uh, large level of importance within the uh, black and African-American community. Does it hold that same level of importance to you? It does. It does, yes, because our hair takes time to work on. You know, we just don't brush and go. So doing your hair is like a ritual and it's like time for bonding in families. When I was growing up, my mom would sit down and comb our hair. We'd take like half hour to an hour each one of us and that's when she just do something quick you know but here was here time is bonding time for african for the african-american community so our here mean a lot to us we spend a lot of time with our here and it's it's important to us it's important to us because we have to spend time with it so we make that time worthy and that time is sacred 
Prior to uh, living in Oakland, where are your roots from originally? Well, it's a long story. I was born in Costa Rica, in the city by the name of Lamont. Costa Rica is on the Atlantic coast of Costa Rica. When in my early 20s, I moved to the U.S. for good. My mom lived here. That's a long story. Uh, but I used to visit her. And then in my early 20s, I decided to stay here. I came to this country. I was already adult. Nobody was going to take care of me. I had to take care of myself. So I decided to go into here full time. When I came I came to New York first I lived there for a while then I moved to California and the minute I moved to California I realized that there was a need for a hair braiding salon there was other kind of salons but there was a need for a real professional hair braiding salon and I um, start working on what I had to do, get accredited, get licensed, get do well what I needed to do to um, to start start the salon and this was 21 years ago. <laughs> Have you seen a lot of changes since you are downtown in Oakland within that 20 years as far as the, the city? Oh my goodness, yes, changes. When I moved down here, I could count with my hand the businesses that was done here and uh, honestly I can't think of a business that is still around here that was here when I started this business so I can almost say that I'm one of the oldest businesses that are still down here downtown Oakland um, downtown Oakland was a ghost town nobody wanted to be cut after certain hours downtown Oakland there's been a lot of changes, a lot of changes. You can see it, you can actually see it with your eyes, a changing day by day, how oh, the whole thing is shifting and um, buildings are coming up and the different totally kind of people are moving in and it's, it's, it's a whole different downtown Oakland than what it was when I when I first came down here, it changed drastically, drastic change. Do you have any advice for any young black uh, entrepreneurs? Sure. Being an entrepreneur means that you believe in yourself, that you know that you can achieve, that you know that you have a plan. Most likely you're working towards something. Just stick to it. Stick to it. Be focused. Don't get despair if things don't go your way right away. Just have a plan. Go slow. Go steady. Do what you have to do. Cross your T's. Dot your I's. That's my biggest advice. And also, be consistent. Be consistent. Believe in yourself. And as I say, you know, if things don't go well the first time, don't, don't, don't give up. Keep pushing. Keep pushing is hard work. I'm not going to tell anybody a lie. Being your own boss has its pros, but it also has its cons. You don't work, you don't eat, basically. But um, it's rewarding. It's very rewarding. You have the convenience of being able to choose your own schedule, go on vacation when you want to. You know, do a lot of things that if you had a boss, you wouldn't be able to do. You know, it's not a, a bit of roses all the time. I'm not going to lie to anybody.
<laughs> well, we thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for for the for the interview. And um, whenever you need to talk again, I'll be happy. <laughs> All right. This is Full Circle here on 94.1 KPFA. And we just heard Ephraim Colbert with Sharon Campbell, owner of World of Braids in Oakland, downtown Oakland. I got my hair done there. I love that place. I love the sister and the work she does there. And what those women create are, is art. Um, hair is so important as a status symbol. It says a lot about who you are. People make um, assumptions about you based on your hair often, and, and hair is used as a status statement. It really is. Those ladies down there get paid very well for doing what they do, and I love that shop. And I love the discussion of cultural values and what we put <clears throat> on the top of our list is what's important. Now, I really appreciated that interview. Uh, World of Braids is an institution in Oakland, <clears throat> and I really appreciate uh, Ephraim going out and talking to those ladies about what they're doing. All right, we'll be right back. <clears throat> Excuse me. I get all choked up when I'm listening to these things. This piece in particular got to me, too. Ah, We were talking about hair and getting your hair pressed and burnt with an iron and a curling iron. That was hot, and it brought me back to my age, my little childhood times when I struggled with my hair. All right, we'll be right back. We're going to take a little music break. Brown skin, you know I love your brown skin. I can't tell where yours begins. I can't tell where mine is. Brown skin, up against my brown skin. Need some every now and then. Mississippi or Island. Apparently your skin has been kissed by the sun You make me want a Hershey's kiss Your licorice Every time I see your lips It makes me think of honey-coated chocolate Your kisses are worth more than gold to me I'll be your almond joy You'll be my sugar daddy Brown you know I love your brown skin I can't tell where yours begins I can't tell where mine is Brown skin Up against my brown skin Need some every now and then Something magnetic pulls me and I can't get out Disoriented, I can't tell my upfront down All I know is that I wanna lay you down Every time I lay you in I magic happens as we swim Higher and higher, finally we reach heaven Tell where mine is. 
heat Up against my brown skin Every now and then So round, baby, how can I be down? Beautiful mahogany, you make me feel like a queen. You make me Oh my God. Her music makes you want to do something. <laughs> I haven't heard that in a long time. Um, brown skin in the area. It was great. Great for our break. So, um, welcome back. This is Full Circle here on 94.1 FM KPFA. And. Ah, NDRE is going to help us transition into a different topic. Tonight we've been celebrating African-American history. I know they gave us a month, but it's a lifelong project for me, finding out, discovering, and expressing, sharing my history with everyone else. And uh, those staff at Full Circle and Apprentices worked really hard to put together a great show tonight, and I'm really enjoying it. So, so far we've talked about our locks, our hair, and some of the superstitions and status symbols that things that go along with hair. We talked about skin, uh, skin color, how important it is in our culture, in the hierarchy in this society. Now we're going to go back to a darker time that may be deja vu, uh, to the time when African Americans were hung uh, indiscriminately, illegally, for whatever reason. And no one did much about it. And um, there was mob rule. Lots of killings going on. Not unlike um, the opposite-involved shootings we have now. It's been historically known that the Ku Klux Klan, who was uh, responsible for a lot of lynchings, was often peopled by the police force, the local police. And so things haven't changed in my view. But we're going to talk about it with Apprentice Rod Akil. He's a graduate apprentice. Uh, um, I'm sorry, a former apprentice as well, or a graduate apprentice. I forgot which one, Mickey. Oh, a graduate apprentice, Rod Akil, excuse me, <laughs> is going to look back at the uh, history of lynch- lynching. It's a serious, serious time in our country and something we've struggled through. And um, I hope we have the resilience and the resources to continue to struggle, as I said, with things like police officer involved shootings okay let's listen to uh, Rodakil after the civil rights act of 1866 which made African American citizens of the United States riots broke out in many of the southern states as a result the Ku Klux Klan was established in 1867 and the number of African American lynchings increased dramatically In the years between 1882 and 1930, in the 10 southern states, 
there were 2,805 documented victims of lynchings. The vast majority of these lynchings, 2,500, were African American. Of these black victims, 94% died in the hands of white lynch mobs. The scale of this carnage means that, on the average, a black man, woman, or child was murdered nearly once a week, every week, by a hate-driven white mob. During these ritual racist killings, crowds would gather as if they were going to a town festival. Parents would bring their children to watch a human being tortured, burned, and lynched. Dr. Joy Leary, the author of Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, in one of her lectures, reads a newspaper article that describes in great detail one of these lynchings. Before the torch was applied, the Negro was deprived of his ears, fingers, and genital parts of his body. He pleaded pitifully for his life while the mutilization was going on, but stood the ordeal of fire with surprising fortitude. Before the body was cool, it was cut to pieces, the bones were crushed into small bits, and even the tree upon which the wretch met his fate was torn up and disposed of as souvenirs. The Negro's heart was cut into several pieces, as was also his liver. Those unable to obtain the ghastly relics direct paid their more fortunate possessors extravagant sums for them. Small pieces of bones went for 25 cents and a bit of the liver crisply cooked sold for 10 cents. As soon as the Negro was seen to be dead, there was a tremendous struggle among the crowd to secure the souvenirs. Knives were quickly produced and soon the body was dismembered. Plain old common folk did this. In the documentary, American Lynching, James Cameron remembers being almost lynched. I was 16 years old. Thomas Ship was 18 and April Smith was 19. The mob came into the jail and they got Tommy out first. He was right below me on the first floor. They took him around from this side of the jail to the other side and hung him on the jail windows where Abe was incarcerated. And no doubt Abe was looking at him as they hung him from the windows on the outside of his cell block. Then 15 or 20 minutes later, after celebrating that kill, they came back in, they got Abe out, they beat him to death, drug him past the alley here, and I couldn't see anymore. And then a half a block away, they hung him on the tree. Finally, this guy said, take them all out and lynch them. And when he said that, this 16-year-old boy, Charles Haynes, he raised his hand and said, it wasn't none of us, Lester, that's him right there. And he pointed his finger at me like that. And when he did that, the mob closed in on me. And when they got out into the street, the mob hollered, we got him, we got him, we got him. And the police was helping the mob so they could get me up to the tree where Tom and A was hanging with a rope around their neck. And they got me up to the tree, they put the rope around my neck, and they threw the end of the rope over the limb of the tree. I kept looking to the right and to the left and begging for help and telling people to help me that I hadn't done anything to deserve this. And they were getting ready to pull me up when I prayed to God. I said, Lord, have mercy, forgive me my sins. As soon as I prayed, a voice came out. I said, take this boy back. He had nothing to do with any killing or raping. And that voice came from far away, drifting down. And uh, that mob that had already killed two human beings, and they took that rope off my neck and they allowed me to stumble and stagger back to the jail, which was just a half a block away.
People from the lynch mob would take photographs of the dead victims and make postcards and mail them to their friends and relatives throughout the country. They would also take these photos, frame them, and hang them on their living room walls as if they were family portraits. past 25 years, James Allen has collected over 100 photographs and postcards of lynchings throughout the United States. These photos have been published as a book called Without Sanctuary. Mr. Allen comments on his findings. In America, everything is for sale, even a national shame. Studying these photographs has engendered in me a caution of whites, of the majority, of the young, of religion, of the accepted. Perhaps a certain circumspection concerning these things was already in me, but surely not as actively as after the first sight of a brittle postcard of Leo Frank, dead in an oak tree. It wasn't the corpse that bewildered me, as much as the canine thin faces of the pack lingering in the woods, circling after the kill. Hundreds of flea markets later, a trader pulled me aside and in conspiratorial tones offered to sell me a real photo postcard. It was Laura Nelson hanging from a bridge, caught so pitiful and tattered and beyond retrieving, like a paper kite snagged on a utility wire. That image of Laura layered a pall of grief over all my fears. I believe the photographer was more than a perceptive spectator at lynchings, positioning and lighting corpses as if they were game birds shot on the wing. Indeed, the photographic art played as significant a role in the ritual as torture or souvenir grabbing. Lust propelled the commercial reproduction and distribution of the images. Even dead, the victims were without sanctuary. With each encounter, I can't help thinking of these photos and the march of time and of the cold steel trigger in the human heart. There were a number of African-American journalists. One such heroic journalist was Ida B. Wells. Ms. Wells constantly wrote about the discrimination and inequality that African-Americans endured in the United States. When three close male friends were lynched for opening up a grocery store directly across the street from a white-owned grocery store, Outraged by the murder of her friends, Miss Wells began an anti-lynching campaign. She wrote scathing editorials against lynching, and she spoke publicly throughout the country on the subject, and began to organize and mobilize African Americans in an effort to abolish this vicious practice. As a result, a mob destroyed the office of her newspaper, and she lived under constant death threats. During this horrific time, black congressmen tried to pass an anti-lynching bill. The U.S. House of Representatives passed a measure three times to make lynching a federal offense, but it was knocked down in the Senate. Powerful Southern senators used a filibuster to block votes. The Southern senators didn't want to offend their constituents with anti-lynching laws. Some of the arguments used on the Senate floor, quote, Whenever a Negro crosses this dead line between the white and the Negro race and lays his black hand on a white woman, he deserves to die, unquote. That was said by Alabama Senator James Thomas Heflin in 1930. In a 1938 debate, Richard B. Russell, a senator from Georgia, constantly referred to lynching victims as niggers.
June 14, 2005, the U.S. Senate approved a resolution apologizing for its failure to pass federal anti-lynching laws. It's the first time the Senate has apologized for the nation's treatment of African Americans. Too little, too late. We still have African Americans terrorized by violence today. There was the highly publicized killing of James Byrd, who was dragged behind a truck and decapitated in Jasper, Texas. There was the well-dressed African-American young man who was found hanging from a noose in Concord, California. That official claim was a suicide. And of course, there is the systematic genocide of young black men in urban communities today. So in another hundred years, will the government apologize again for the thousands of black lives lost and they still didn't do anything to stop it? It's an extended metaphor linking trees to the fruit blunting victims. That um, tune was made famous by Billie Holiday and was actually written as a poem by Abel Mirapol in 1937. And uh, that was a dark time in um, history, and I'm afraid we're revisiting it in the form of, as I said, police brutality and the wanton killing of black people, not just black men either. Um, I want to thank Rod Akil, graduate apprentice, uh, for that bit of history. It's important that we make links to, to the past and understand how they inform and shape our future and our present. Um, it's a very serious time. I'm sorry. I'm choking up again. <laughs> Tonight has been one of those nights. Um, 
<sighs> to just reflect. And I'm glad you're here joining us on this journey. This is Full Circle. I'm Joy Moore, KPFA 94.1 FM. We're going to lighten up the mood just a little bit and um, talk about some history um, being preserved at the Black History Arts and Artifacts Exhibit. Our own Free Woman Franklin is a um, resident of Antioch, and he's a storyteller. And he visited the... Uh, local Black History Arts and Artifacts Exhibit. And he wants to talk about how important it is for everyone, no matter what your ethnicity is, because we are of one race, the human race. But irrespective of your ethnicity, it's important that you remember um, all of our histories because we're all one human race. So we're going to hear a piece by Free Will and Franklin on the Black History Arts and Artifacts exhibit in Antioch. In honor of Black History Month, Dr. Kerry Frazier, Ruha Community Outreach, the City of Antioch, and other community organizations held the sixth annual Black History Arts and Artifacts exhibit at the Nick Rodriguez Community Center in downtown Antioch. The Arts and Artifacts exhibit features a timeline on art, literature, and the creative arts of the African-American experience. Starting in Africa and going on through the Middle Passage and slavery, the Emancipation Proclamation, on to African-American leaders, educators, scientists, inventors, sports figures, and African-Americans in the military the Civil Rights Movement, the Voting Rights Act, all the way up to the election of President Barack Obama, the first black president of the United States. It is my great personal honor to present the 44th president of these United States, Barack Obama. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Kerry Frazier, president of Ruha Community Outreach, is one of the main organizers and curators of the event. Here she talks about the importance of an exhibit such as this to the city of Antioch, a city whose black population has doubled between the 2000 census and the census in 2010, and the number continues to climb. This is Dr. Frazier. Well, you know, Antioch has had its problems in the past, and people of color were not always welcome. And so more and more people have moved into the area. And so we're trying to just kind of stand in the gap so that people really develop a cultural understanding and be able to get along and have harmony in the community. And so we think that being able to show the history and everybody get a chance to look at it factually as well as interact with people will make a difference and help. To the folks like Fannie Lou, the Panthers and SNCC, King, Malcolm Cabral, to the everyday people fighting for power and peace and justice for us all, to the folks who said you could make it if you try, keep on pushing to higher ground, folks who said it's nation time and I'm black and I'm proud, we sing, thank you for letting me be myself again. Local resident, poet, and spoken word artist Keith Archuleta is a regular participant of this annual event. He also reflects on why this is an important exhibit to the city of Antioch. 
Antioch now is one of the most diverse uh, communities around. And so it's important to tell the stories. We have people of all different groups here. In fact, uh, the Asian community is growing very largely here as well. Immigrant population of all nationalities is growing here. But there's always been a lot of people who were white and Latino. So it's important that we all come together and realize this is our all of our community. It belongs to everybody. And what better place than Antioch that is already so diverse and we have such a strong community here of, of African Americans to kind of tell that story. Board member and Antioch resident Sharon Johnson believes it benefits communities to share our histories. We have people from so many different countries all over the world that are living here. I think the more that we can display and educate the different cultures of people, the more enlightened and the more aware the citizens will be. We have more of an understanding and maybe more of a unity. While using a timeline to chronicle the African-American experience and history, Dr. Fraser wanted to be sure she started in Africa, the motherland. This first exhibit emphasizes that African Americans came from a rich culture that didn't start with slavery. In fact, Africa led the world in math, science, arts, philosophy, engineering, and much more. The assumption that most Americans have is that black people just kind of showed up on the shores and we had no culture, so they had to teach us how to act and how to behave when we come from a very rich history that's thousands of years old, well before the Americas were even discovered by Columbus. People don't have any problems with, say, like National Geographics and looking at tribal customs and all like that. They just don't make the connection that these people are connected to the black people that are here. And so that's why we start with Africa, so that they can get a glimpse of what was going on before the slave trade started. Sharon Johnson and Keith Archuleta both agree that a timeline that starts on the African continent is how black history should be taught in our schools, and not just to start with slavery in the Americas. A lot of this stuff is just not taught in the schools at all. So the more exposure you have to these elements, the more they know what's going on. And they know the, um, that they're the important part that each of us, uh, no matter what race they are, plays the contributions that each of us give to the culture as a whole. Just as much as if we talked about European history or white history today, we wouldn't start with the slave owner because that would be a false image of a white person. So we don't want to start with the history of human development with the worst period that we can think of. We really should be thinking about, well, how did that happen? How did that period happen? What happened before that? What was going on with development in around the world, the creativity, the art, the culture, the languages that were being developed in Africa and other places? So if we want to start with history being, which some people still try to do, they say it started in Greece or that history started during slavery, those are lies. We gotta call that out. We gotta not let so-called intellectual professors and others tell the lies. We've gotta tell the whole truth. Go start anywhere in the past. Let's let's bring that thread as far back as we can, but let's bring it up to the to the future as well. Seeing as our education system doesn't always do justice to the African American experience and to their contributions to the development of this country, Dr. Fraser believes a timeline exhibit is important and helps us to see where we fit in. All of us have interacted in this timeline in different ways. Like myself, I'm older and I'm a veteran of the 60s. So when I come to a, a place like this, art is fine, but I want to see where was I 
how did I fit? And so when we can show people what happened while they were born, you know, when they were first born or when they were teenagers or whatever, and they've heard stories, but to be able to see it in a sequence is really powerful. As Dr. Frazier says, seeing history laid out in front of you really helps to see where you fit in or your community. As I made my way through the hall, I came across one exhibit with a local story, one that not many residents know about. And that's the story of the Port Chicago Naval Weapons Station in Concord, California. The Port Chicago Naval Munitions Port was to help provide support for our war efforts in the Pacific Theater in World War II. The base was opened in 1942. Two years later, a massive explosion devastated the base. The seamen assigned to the hazardous job of loading the munitions were all African Americans working under white commanding officers. This base was a model of segregation in the military. The death toll from the blast was a testament to that fact. I spoke with East Bay Regional Park Ranger Raphael Allen, who brought the Port Chicago exhibit to the hall. 10 million pounds of ammunition blowing up and killing over 300 people. Immediately the question arises, how do you get a, an accident where 62% of the casualties are black, but only 6% of the Navy is black? And that question sends people looking for the policies that gave us segregation here in the Bay Area, in this base next to Concord. Policies and protests against mixing the races on ships were popping up in Congress. So we have some amazing positions taken by representatives, like one I'll share with you here. This comes from Congressman William Pogue, a Democrat out of Texas, who writes three days after the attack on Pearl Harbor to say this. I do not mean to urge a complete seclusion of Negroes from military or naval service, but I do most earnestly plead with you to see that there is a complete segregation of the races. He goes on to say, to assign a Negro doctor to treat some southern white boy would be a crushing insult and, in my opinion, an outrage against the patriotism of our southern people. And it was positions like Congressman William Pogues that sent the Navy toward a policy to develop separate labor silos for blacks so that we could work and possibly get promoted but never end up in a position of authority over white sailors. So we end up having a segregated working situation at the Port Chicago base and it gets worse. It does get worse. Three weeks after the devastating explosion, ships began coming into port to get loaded with more munitions. And who do you think the Navy would ask to do that? That's right. But after three weeks of picking up the remains of their friends and fellow sailors, the African-American sailors wanted time to recoup like their white counterparts were getting. And when they refused to load in unsafe conditions, well... Eventually, 44 of them were singled out and slated for a mutiny trial in Treasure Island, and six more with a broken arm and other injuries were added to that group of 44 to make a big round number of 50. They were tried on Treasure Island, six-week trial, 80 minutes of deliberation. They were all found guilty, uh, sentenced 8 to 15 years. They served down in San Pedro, Southern California, for about 15 months. They were released in January of 46, and ironically, they were finally put on ships and sailed back and forth. 
until they'd served out their term. And they wanted to be on ships in the first place and weren't allowed. And here they were on ships, surrounded by white sailors who considered them heroes for shutting down a dangerous operation. Over the years, they'd all go to their graves, the last of them on... Uh, New Year's Day this year, Jack Crittenden, age 92, passed away. Um, all of them went to their graves without exoneration. And we know of only one of them, Freddie Meeks Jr., being pardoned in, in 99 by President Bill Clinton. But the rest of the men have not been able to collect their military benefits. They weren't allowed military burials because of the mutiny charge. Raphael told me that these courageous sailors changed things in the Navy. The... Navy now expects its enlisted men and women to shut down any operation that they consider unsafe. But that is such a change from what the policy was when these men were found guilty of mutiny. Again, that was East Bay Regional Park Ranger Raphael Allen speaking about the Port Chicago Naval Weapons Base disaster. The remains of the now defunct base still sit just off Highway 4 at the Port Chicago exit next to the golf course in Concord, California. And that's my last stop on the timeline, coming from the 6th Annual Black History Month Arts and Artifacts Exhibit in Antioch, California. This is Free Will and Franklin, and I'll leave you with this quote from Marcus Garvey. A people without the knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. Peace. Thank you. That was uh, Free Will and Franklin with a piece um, that reminds us how history can be hidden and bringing out the facts can be very difficult, but we need to hear about things that are going on. Sometimes you can't imagine what um, one human being could do to another. Welcome back. If you just joined us, you're listening to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. Tonight's show is dedicated to African-American history and a salute to all our KPFA listeners. And you just heard an amazing piece by Free Will and Franklin, who is also a graduate apprentice. Um, and if you happen to live in or near uh, Antioch tomorrow or want to travel down to Antioch, um, that's t- uh, February 18th, you still have a chance to check out the Arts and Artifacts exhibit downtown at Nick Rodriguez Community Center. That's uh, 213 F Street in downtown Antioch. And it will be open for its final day tomorrow from noon until 5. Uh, I, I strongly encourage people to go and check it out. One of the things that I hope we can change in this country is the separation that we have in histories. Um, Our history is human history. It's not African-American history. It's not uh, European-American history. It's not Chinese history. It's human history. And it's important that we know about, know what each other has experienced and share it with each other. And that's how you build community. So I really appreciate... um, Free Will and Franklin for sharing that piece and going on a, tr- a journey in Antioch uh, and bringing it back to share with us. So we're um, coming to the final 
end of the part of the program. And but no show that we do here uh, about and with apprentices would be complete without a piece from our uh, director, Mickey Mays, longtime director, great woman, fantastic director of the apprenticeship program. She deserves a lot more credit than she gets. Anyway, you guessed it. We have something from her. It's a uh, summary. Uh, she sums up for us with her commentary. Oh, all lives matter. Uh, it's read by Apprentice Teresa Adams. Of course, all lives matter. The problem lies, however, in the selective definition of the word all. In 1776, the Declaration of Independence was promulgated. It said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. However, that definition of all was interpreted by the powers that be as encompassing only white men with property, not indigenous Americans, not Asians, not Arabs, not Africans, and certainly not women. Native Americans were among the first to be decimated by the harsh reality that all was most definitely not all-inclusive. After the Civil War and the so-called emancipation of slaves, the definition of all still excluded those who had even one drop of black blood. And yes, it wasn't until 1920 that women, primarily white women, were allowed into the all-club for the purpose of voting. When it comes to being protected from killings without justification, being gunned down in the street by the police, and being incarcerated without due cause, the All Club still greatly excludes people of color. Of course all lives matter, but it's way beyond the time that all folks, from the powers that be to the rank and file, have the realization that all includes humans of every hue. For Full Circle, I'm Teresa Adams. All right. Thank you, Teresa. Um, that was a piece called All Lives Matter, read by Apprentice um, Teresa Adams. Um, so we've come to the end of the show, and I want to thank everybody for listening to our tribute to black history or African-American history. And I want to thank Miss M for that thought-provoking commentary there at the end. I want to give a heads up. Next week we'll be in the fun drive mode. Fun, fun, fun drive mode. Tune in to Full Circle at 7 p.m. for a special presentation of National Bird, a film following the lives of three whistleblowers from the U.S. drone program. And if you want to get a sneak preview of the film, um, there will be a screening at the New Parkway Theater in Oakland Tuesday, February 21st at 7 p.m. Question and answers with the producer Ennis Hoffman and Kana and veteran whistleblower Lisa Ling. So for now, check out uh, our website at kpfaapprentice.org. There you can listen to our past shows and see pictures of us and some of our guests. You can also download applications to join the KPFA Apprenticeship Program. And as you may know, this show is produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. You too can be an apprentice. Download the application at kpfaapprentice.org or you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 235. Again, that's 510-848. 6767 extension 235 or you can um, you can have us mail you an application uh, if you'd like instead of downloading it and I want to take this minute personal minute to um, 
make a couple of announcements. First, I want to talk about some of the many dear members of our community that we've lost already this year. Ah, sad to say, Queen Mother Sister McKenna, uh, who was a, a programmer in the Third World Programming Department here in KPFA, passed away peacefully at the Elmwood Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Berkeley last Saturday at 3 a.m. She leaves behind a host of cousins, loved ones, and communities across the country who loved and cared about her. We will always remember her. Her family is planning a memorial service, and you'll... If you're close to them and you want to find out about it, check out with check with the family and they'll inform you of what their plans are. Also, we are sad to say Nicole Milner has passed from us. She's a longtime avid KPFA supporter, humanitarian, community and environmental activist, and the wife of Carl Lynn. Sorry to see see that she's passed to another plane, and we loved and honored her as well. Finally, Al Jarreau died in Los Angeles on Sunday at the age of 76. And one word comes to mind when I think about Jarreau. Two words, love and smooth. We're going to miss his voice. Finally, everyone's invited to celebrate Huey P. Newton's birthday with the Minister of Culture of the Black Panther Party, the internationally renowned visual artist and cartoonist Emery Douglas. The event will be held on Saturday, February 18th from 2 to 6 p.m. at Hero Building, uh, 1250 Street in East Oakland. Doors open at 2 p.m. Slideshow presentation by Emery Douglas scheduled for 3 p.m. This is a benefit for the San Francisco Bay View National Black newspaper and is wheelchair accessible don't forget life is what you make it i'm so happy to have been your host joy moore i want you to stay tuned for uh on the bajita but i want to let you know the executive producer for full circle is miss m our de- technical director is free will and franklin sterling thanks to dennis at the controls and our uh, tech assistant also is miss m i'm joy moore the production consultant for full circle and tonight's host stay tuned for la on the bajita and we will go out with the last song recorded here in kpfa studio right here on full circle is that true frank no, we're going out with our theme song. Stay tuned for La Honda Bajita.